Well, I think it's important. I mean, like, we've had this format. We've been doing it for a long time. We just need to keep with the way that we've been doing it. That's what people are expecting. Listen, right now, people have no (laughs) expectations of us. You want to know why? Because we told them we're not going to do shit all summer long. So I don't know why anyone's expecting anything. I mean, I would just, if I were a listener, I would just be confused if things all of a sudden change. All right. All right. You know what? That's fine. Here, here. How about this? (laughs) Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. We're bringing you... (laughs) Completely unnecessary... (laughs) Commentary. <laughs> um, so this is this episode is going to be the second uh, part of our Noir at the Bar Chicago three uh, live event. In the previous episode, you heard John Wigley, uh, Carmen Jaramillo, and Josh K. Stevens reading. Also, a little bit of bickering between me and Livius. <laughs> um, and now we're going to bring you in this episode, Lori Raider Day and Eric Beatner, and likely more bickering. Probably a little more. <laughs> Probably a little so more bickering. Yeah. So to catch um, catch listeners up, yeah, we went to intermission, then we came back from intermission, and we were lucky enough to hear this little um, a bit of a book from Lori Raider Day, who um, published in Good Housekeeping. I, I don't even I don't, <laughs> I don't that that now trumps um, hunting and fishing or what was, what was the deer other and one? deer hunting? I think that's is the one. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, there was. Oh, but remember, who was it that we read their bio? If it was um, Hillary Davidson, she has her non-crime bio and she has her crime bio. And the bio that I pulled for the episode that we had her in was the, the non-crime bio. And it was like, I swear she writes crime stuff is kind of how I felt when we were reading it. Yep. Yeah. And then following a Lori Raider day is Eric Beatner, who, as uh, you'll hear in this episode... He's been running Noir at the Bar for four years um, in L.A. So, yeah, it's it's the only time I've really been intimidated being on a stage. But, you know, we talked to him afterwards. Really cool guy. Yeah, good guy. Um, I guess after the reading in Chicago, he did a road trip up to Minneapolis with Kent Gowron to do a Noir at the Bar there as well. Yeah, I saw that Kent was going up there. I was like, man, Kent's really hitting, <laughs> hitting all the noir at the bars, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> He's doing noirs at all the bars. Noirs at the bars. So um, I guess we could just go right into it then, right? Yeah, let's do it. All right, here's Lori Raider Day, followed by Eric Beatner. Did everybody get a chance to, to get a drink? Yes? Everybody's good? Okay. Um, we have an update. We still don't know how we're going to give away a book, so we're putting it back on you guys, in case you were wondering. How about whoever traveled the farthest? There this is, is this is now see That's here's the what happened. Someone so had a suggestion. This might work. <laughs> um, can we do a quick round of applause for our first three readers because they were. Fucking <laughs> All the final two readers um, have quite the acts to follow up, which I know puts no pressure on the next reader at all. No pressure. Thank you. <laughs> so our next reader is going to be Lori Raider Day. Here is her bio that was sent magically to uh, to Jake and then he stalked her for. Yeah, yeah. the stalking so restraining order. <laughs> Laurie Raider Day's debut mystery, The Black Hour, received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Libra- Library Journal, and was a finalist for the Mary Higgins Clark Award. Her second mystery, Little Pretty Things, was released this July, and I see that all over Facebook, by the way. <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> Uh, her short stories have appeared in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, Time Out Chicago, Good Housekeeping, and others. She lives in Chicago with her husband and spoiled dog and is active in the Mystery Writers of America Midwest chapter and a member of Sisters of Crime and International Thriller Writers. Everybody, Lori Raider Day. 
Hello, I am the answer to the question, who is the least noir at this bar? <laughs> um, I just have, I actually brought the Black Hour because it's a little darker than Little Pretty Things. I don't, I don't know, you guys look dark to me. <laughs> so let me just write, read a quick chapter. The book is about a professor who was attacked by a student she didn't know and uh, she's returned back to campus after 10 months away. Um, the student who shot her uh, shot himself and died, but this is her first day back. The kid shot me outside my office. He was not my student. He was not my lover. He was not my enemy. I had never taught him. I had never advised him. I had never met him. This was the part no one believed. The police nodded and used words like indiscriminate, but the doubt was palpable. The reporters questioned my story. They wrote articles that made other people question my story, calling it my story, for one thing, as though I were not stationed in the intensive care unit at all, but rather up in my writer's garret spinning tales, using alleged and strategic play phrases. The student press, they were brutal. They didn't allege. They published purple prose memorials online to the sanctity of the campus, sometimes remembering to mourn the kid, too, and let anonymous comments do the accusing. Nothing like this had ever happened at Rothbard. This could happen at other places, but not at dear, venerable Rothbard. The administrators, the trustees, quite a few people, in fact, would have felt happier if they'd never simply, if they simply never heard of me again. I don't know what they all thought, that I baited a troubled kid, drove him insane with sex or quid pro quo grading practices, and then suffered the only outcome that made any sense, got what I deserved, asked for it. That was a phrase I'd come across more than once in the comments section of the student newspaper's website. This kid outside my door shuffled his feet. You're not from the Rothbard Reader, are you, I said. I managed at least three feet to my office door without succumbing to the television static playing at the edges of my vision, pale, lightheaded, drenched, shaking. I must have looked like I'd survived something. I must have looked just the way they'd expected me to. I'm from the sociology department. The student's look of doubt grew deeper, concerned. He reached for his backpack. I held out a hand to stop him. I hated backpacks. I hated the dark. I hated loud noises. I hated students. I hated my hatred and my paranoia, but they were deep. I hadn't found the bottom. You're probably in the right place. Can you get the door, I said. I pulled out the key ring and held it out. If he thought the request strange, he didn't let on. He took the key and unlocked the door, putting his shoulder into it. On the wall next to the door, two brown plastic plates had been mounted, my name and Corrine's etched in white, and underneath them a bin attached where students left late work and notes pleading for deadline extensions. The kid held the door, but I made him wait while I swept the bin. Some gum wrappers, nice. An errant Rothbard University business card from Psych Services, great. Ten months gone and the welcome I get. Trash, an offer of psychological assistance, and a skittish grad student. To his credit, the kid flinched only a little when I brushed past him into my office. Now, now I was home. I had loved my office from first sight, the first dirty windowed, bad lighting, cracked plaster sight. Mine and Kareen's office had the same high ceilings I'd lamented not ten minutes before, gorgeous to me now that I wasn't climbing their height, and tall windows that opened up on the lake. If you pressed your face to the glass, the tiny Chicago skyline lay 20 miles or so down the coast. When I sat at my desk, I felt as though I had done something right in my lifetime. I flicked on the light and stumbled for the solid corner of my desk, displacing a stack of mail waiting for me. I'd have a backlog of emails and voicemails, too. The kid, 
bent to pick up the mail. Don't worry about it, I said. You can sit down. I leaned my good hip on the corner of my desk and used the cane to keep balance. I swung my, my bag over my head and onto the floor. What's your name? Nathaniel Barber, he said. The student watched me get settled but didn't say anything. He finally helped himself to the guest chair. Good boy. Did Dean Perry send you? My voice was sharper than I'd meant it to be, and the slap showed on the student's face. No. You're new, just starting the program? Yes, he said. So how am I already your advisor, I said. I talked to Dr. Wu. Ah, there it was. Dr. Wu sent you to me, today. I looked at my watch. Before 9 a.m.? He said you might need some help. Again, with what I might need. Did he now? J. Benjamin Wu and I had started at Rothbard the same year, reached tenure together, which he couldn't stand because I'd gone to a state school. He could barely utter the words, state school. He had a year on me now. The kid's knee started to, be, to bounce. Dr. Wu said there might be an assistantship or a TA position. I took a closer look at Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Not Nathan, not Nate. Unwrinkled clothes, clean shaven. His backpack was all zipped up and so was he. Just that one swipe of unruly hair across his eye and now I can see that it was not an affectation as much as a bad haircut. He was too wide-eyed to be anything but sincere. I sighed. My conspiracy theories and I needed to part ways. All right, bring me your resume and a copy of your transcripts, I said. I don't have any idea what I need yet, but there might be something. He nodded sagely, but I saw the childlike excitement as he reached for his backpack again. Of course, he would have the paperwork with him. I washed his hands closely until he'd retrieved a sheaf of papers. The only high-functioning enthusiasm I'd seen in the last year belonged to the lawyers, the reporters, and the nosy civilians at the grocery store when I could finally leave my apartment. I could think of a lot of reasons, unsavory reasons, why a student might seek me out right now, today, first thing. What's your research area anyway? Anything pre-World War I, you have to go back to Dr. Wu. A flicker of concern crossed his face as I shifted my weight on the desk and found a knot of pain waiting for me. I might have made a noise. Nathaniel watched me pant it out. I'm sort of prohibition, he said, through Great Depression. I'd been having one of those myself. Or I'd start another if I didn't get off this desk and into my pain meds. I glanced uneasily at the bag at my feet, a terrible fear landing with a thud in my gut. Had I left the bottle on the bathroom sink? Once the thought was in my head, I couldn't think of anything else. The pills, large orange pills made of magic and moonbeams that gave me the courage to be alive for another few hours. Orange, fluffy clouds on which I could rest my weary body. The silence in the room had grown long. Sort of, I said. Well, he said, I'm interested in poverty and... Are you okay? Sure, I said, of course, why not? He leaned over his backpack again, unzipped one of the pockets and pulled out something. I couldn't be anxious. My nerves jangled five alarm, already fully engaged. The image of the bottle of pills in the bathroom sink clawed at me. I wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it even if I took the elevator and didn't mind who the hell saw me, even if I could run all the way home. Nathaniel had out his hand. In his palm sat a little plastic packet of folded tissues. You're crying, he said. I swiped at my cheek. He flicked a tissue out of the pack and handed it to me. Poverty and what, I said, my voice strangled and whimpering, the mule of a kitten. I hated myself, I really did. The pills, orange, on the sink. 
He watched me sniffle into the tissue, and there it was again. The bare splash was something shifty and unexpected on his boyish face. It could have been discomfort. I was breaking down in front of him, after all. Who would want to be a part of that? But I didn't think that was all. Out with it, I said. Crime, he said at last. That's my focus, particularly violent crime. That's my favorite, too, I said through clenched teeth. I was pleased to know Lou's game at last, but distracted to the point of delirium. The pills. If they were at home, I'd need some assistance. And even if, and even if they were in the bag, here in the bag, even if, I would need help. Lots and lots of help. This assistantship, I said, gripping the edge of my desk, it might be a little different than what you expected. Thank you. Can you tell us about the story in Good Housekeeping? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not a crime story. Okay. You might have figured that out already. I just want to know which issue I tracked down to read it. Uh, the 125th anniversary issue, Michelle Obama is on the cover. All right. <laughs> All right. Check your local library. It's going to go to my back catalog. <laughs> so on the way here, I was glancing at the bios, and I noticed that Eric has been the host of Noir at the Bar LA for the past four years. So see, when you guys come up here, you think, you know, there's other writers in the room and other people who have read, and you're nervous. <laughs> and this guy has been doing this for four years somewhere else, which makes me a little nervous. <laughs> Eric Beatner is the author of over a dozen books, three already this year, including The Year I Died Seven Times, Over Their Heads, and Rum Runners, with three more books due out this year. So you've been at this for two years, if my math is yeah. correct? That's right, okay. His work has been praised by Megan Abbott, John Rector, Scott Phillips, Hillary Davidson, and many more. Joe Lansdale once tweeted, good stuff, <laughs> after reading one of Eric's books. Both his wife and his mother refuse to read his work because it's too dark. He lives in Los Angeles, where he contributes to the death of reading by working in the TV industry. He's been the host of Noir at the Bar LA for the past four years. Everybody. It's true. Uh, it's been about four and a half years since we uh, stole the idea from uh, Jed and Scott in St. Louis, uh, who had in turn stolen the idea for Noir at the Bar from Peter Rozowski in Philadelphia. Bar Peter Rozowski. <laughs> Thank you. Now it's official. <laughs> uh, and I got to say, the, the, the last time I was in Chicago, I was here working on a TV show, uh, and in my frantic rush in the cab over here reminded me of that show because it was like an action-adventure kind of reality show thing. Uh, and then previous to that, the other time I was in Chicago, I was on tour, but I was on tour in a band, and Chicago was the low point of what was the worst rock tour in the history of rock tours. So uh, it's great to be back on a much more festive night, uh, and I'm not in a van that is constantly breaking down, uh, and it's not minus three degrees, so. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you so much, uh, for Jake, for, for inviting me. And we've been talking about this for, for a long time, and finally I just threw caution to the wind and said, fuck it, booked a plane ticket, flew out here, put on my uh, finest from the Raylan Gibbons collection, apparently. Um, and the prudent thing to do uh, would be to read from one of the aforementioned books uh, that uh, I have had out this year. Uh, 
including uh, my novel Rum Runners, which is on the same publisher uh, as Josh's book. And I can attest to Josh's book and, and the entire Deuce Walls trilogy. Uh, Josh knows his hard-boiled fiction, so if you're looking for a dose of hard-boiled, you, know, you heard it before, but definitely check that out. Uh, but selling books has not ever really been my priority, so I'm going to read something totally different, uh, and I'm going to read something that's, that's brand new. And what this is, uh, it's a short story. There's an anthology, anthology that's coming out sometime. I, I don't know. I wrote the story, I handed it in, and then I haven't heard anything. Uh, but the idea was uh, short stories based on outlaw country songs, uh, which is not my typical genre of music. But uh, I have an appreciation, and I went down and, uh, and hunted for great titles. Uh, and the title I settled on was called, Pardon Me, I've Got Someone to Kill, <laughs> by Johnny Paycheck, because we all, we all know that. And naturally, the story sort of wrote itself from there. Uh, so uh, it was running a little long, so this is actually an edited version. And I realized that actually I, I edited out the portion that references the title to, to the song. So. When uh, when the anthology eventually does come out, it'll be slightly longer, and and you'll hear the title of the song. Uh, but anyway, here we go. Pardon me, I've got someone to kill. Bob Earl was a weasley-faced son of a bitch with a slight wobble in his step thanks to the cotton mouth that hitched a ride on his calf and shot two fangs worth of venom so deep he had to be cut off with a buck knife. Bob Earl came into the Tin Star bearing bad news, and he knew just where to go to do the telling. The far back booth was where Donnie Little could be found most nights, holding court with the men who would bend over backwards to do what he said, or keeping company with a lady who would shed her wranglers and bend any way he asked. It was a redhead that night, but when Donnie saw Bob Earl peg-legging it across the bar room like a man on the run from a swarm of hornets, he knew his date was over. Bob Earl reached the table and stopped to both catch his breath and let his eyes adjust to the light, or lack thereof, off in that corner. He brought with him the musky smell of a man who'd been sweating for a good long time and hadn't showered in an even longer stretch. A date killer, that's what the stench was. The redhead sank deeper into the shadow and sipped at her jack and coke until the ice rattled. What is it, Bob? Bob shook his head as if the news he had to tell would hurt coming out. It's Jimmy. They got him. Cops? Bob Earl nodded. Wet strands of his hair clung to his forehead like earthworms flattened on the pavement after a rain. Donnie slammed his beard to the table, foam volcanoed up the neck and soaked his right hand. When? Tonight. They ambushed him. They was waiting. The redhead perked up. They arrested Jimmy? Donnie didn't look at her. Time for you to go, darling. She stayed put. Donnie leaned closer to Bob Earl. You think someone snitched? I don't see no other way. They had three cars waiting. The whole load is gone. They knew he was coming. Donnie stared a steel rod through the floor. He thought back over anyone who could have put the finger on Jimmy, his kid brother. Jimmy, who joined Donnie's operation at his own insistence. Jimmy, who'd been the good kid, the chance, the exception. And Donnie let him in and now got him caught. He wasn't worried about himself. He took precautions. Nothing would lead back to him. But for a transgression like this, Someone was going to pay. The trial took no time. Ten to fifteen was the number the judge handed down, parole in five if he was good. In the short few weeks since Jimmy's bust, Donnie had narrowed down the list of suspects to three. He thought about killing all three to be safe, but knew that was only his anger thinking for him. Worse than thinking with your prick. He had his most likely candidate, and he knew when he was done with him, Donnie would know the truth. 
Burley Wilcox knew the time and place, knew where Jimmy would be even if he himself was 20 miles away, balls deep in an underage girl who shut her eyes and took the pain all for a pull on the pipe as a reward. Burley Wilcox made bad decisions. Donnie knocked on the door with the barrel of his gun. He brought his razor and wanted to use it if he found Burley was his guy, but that was pleasure and the gun was business. Hey, Donnie, what's up? Burley answered the door in his underwear, hair askew, red road map lines across his cheek where the pillow creases left indents. Donnie pushed past him before Burley had a chance to clear the crust from his eyes. Need to talk to you. Burley watched the gun go past as Donnie slid by him. Sure, sure, Don. What about? Burley rolled a bloodshot eye around the front step to see if Donnie had come alone before closing the door. Jimmy went down. Yeah, I, I heard. Burley scratched his balls, then thought better of it, respect and all that. He lived with the itch like a tick was burrowing under, beneath his sack. Someone tipped. No shit? No shit. Donnie watched for a sign, a tell. He held the gun in front of him, hands crossed below his belt, and the gun looking like he had his dick out and was pissing all over Burley's already piss-stained floor. Burley folded under the pressure and broke Donnie's gaze. He pawed through the mess on his coffee table until he found a pack of smokes, the box crushed but one bent sig remaining. Donnie watched as Burley lit up and blew nervous smoke at the ceiling. He would no longer meet his eyes. The room stank of sweat and unwashed dishes in the sink. Burley was an excellent candidate, already in trouble with the law, his third strike coming up. Donnie thought, say he's busted again. He can pull out this chip, tell them when and where the deal's going down. He gets a free pass and Jimmy gets a bus ride in an orange jumpsuit then a cellmate and a fast lesson in the importance of lubrication. Plus now Burley's body language, his anxious smoking, his twitchy body, red flags, spinning sirens, neon signs. Burley really needed to scratch his balls. He really needed to hit a rail of powder. He really needed a cup of coffee. Mostly the itch south of the sack, though. Why'd you do it, Burley? The cigarette paused halfway to his mouth. Wait, you think I sang? Tell me why. Donnie raised the gun. Burley's naked torso concaved as if a few inches further away would make the difference between life and death. I didn't rat on Jimmy or anybody else. Jesus, fuck Donnie, I would never. What was the deal? Stay out of jail? Jimmy took your place, is that it? Listen to what the fuck I'm saying, Donnie. I didn't do it, I didn't do shit. The itch in his crotch had gone away. All senses were on hold while his adrenaline pumped furiously. His breathing constricted, his skin went cold, and the pale blonde hair stood out like a field of electricity had run through the room. You couldn't be a fucking man and do your time. Your time, Burley. Now Jimmy has to do it? Donnie, you, you, you got it wrong. I didn't... First shot went between two ribs. Missed the heart. White bone poked out through the hole. Exit wound sprayed blood. Burley dropped his cigarette, leaving a thin column of smoke rising in front of him. The second shot cut the smoke into swirls as Burley's chest sprouted a second bloom of red, this time over the heart. Burley's mouth hung open. He took a short stagger step backwards, stepping on his cigarette ash and felt it singe his skin. Donnie rushed him, put out a hand to stop Burley from falling to the ground. He held his skinny body up and color drained from the traitor's face. Donnie noticed Burley's eyes were no longer bloodshot as his heart stopped pumping. He placed the gun on Burley's chest, wedged between the two of them. His eyes were wide, his eyelids straining open until they were sore. He squeezed the trigger a third time, felt the heat of the blast against his own skin, but left the gun there and took the burn. Donnie stood, looked at his hands smeared with blood from the exit wounds. His shirt was stained too from their embrace. Burley dead, 
It didn't help everything, but Donnie felt better, like scratching an itch you've been desperate to get at. He arrived home, the place he used to share with his younger brother. Jimmy came to live with him when he started working for Don. Two years of community college hadn't equated to a job for Jimmy. His options were the street, mom's basement, or beg Donnie for a job in a room. Donnie peeled off his shirt and draped it over the armchair in the living room, careful to keep the bloody side turned out so it wouldn't stain his furniture. The burn on his chest was red and swollen, back black in the center from the muzzle flash. It would heal, but he went to the bathroom to swab it with antiseptic. While he worked, he heard the door open. For a second, he forgot where he left the gun. The kitchen counter, he remembered. Down a hallway and 15 feet from where he stood. Bad move. Donnie, came a familiar voice. His mother. A woman who let it be known that she didn't approve when Jimmy went to work for Don. And she sat front row at every day of Jimmy's trial. What are you doing here, Mom? Donnie came down the hall, anxious to cover the gun. He found her running a finger over the dark stains on his shirt. She looked up and saw her shirtless son with a red welt marking his chest. Donnie, what's going on? Nothing, Mom, it's nothing. It's not nothing. She looked at his wound, then motioned back to the shirt. This is not your blood. What are you doing here, Mom? She nodded her head down to the empty bags in her hands. I'm here to clean up some of Jimmy's things. He wanted some stuff, a few books. He's allowed, you know, or you would know if you ever went to see him. I'm helping Jimmy in my own way. Jesus, Donnie, is that what this is? Donnie stepped forward and swept the shirt off the back of the chair. Don't worry about it. What did you do? I said, don't worry about it. Donnie, I swear to God Almighty, I asked you to look out for him. I didn't want to believe what I hear about you, what some people in the neighborhood say, but Jesus, Donnie. Whatever I did, I did for Jimmy. He's in fucking prison, Mom. You think I don't know that? Yeah, well, the guy who should have been there instead just got his sentence. Donnie grabbed the gun off the counter and hid it under the balled-up shirt in his hands. She dropped her bags. They fell to the ground with the sound of wings on dying birds. Tell me what you did. Donnie cringed at the choked sound in her voice. Mom, just leave, please. It's all over. It's taken care of. What is? Donnie squeezed the shirt between his hands until it bled onto his palms. His mother swallowed back her tears. What's taken care of, Donnie? The one who sent Jimmy to prison. The one who took your baby boy away. Now, didn't I do good? Do you want a fuck like that running free while Jimmy stews in a cell? Tears ran down her face, dropping heavy from tired eyes. That's not your blood, she said again. It wasn't your blood to take. He was a rat. He set Jimmy up. He called the cops. No, he didn't, she said. Mom, no disrespect, but you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. This is my business now. Donnie coiled to explode. You're right. Everything you ever said about me was right. All the stories, it's all true. And I don't care what the fuck you think about me because I'd rather, I'd, no, I'd rather be the kind of guy who puts things right after my brother gets royally fucked over than some wimp who sits back and does nothing. His mother stood firm, tears streaking her face and following the deep contours carved by worry. He didn't call the cops because I did. Donnie felt his chest tighten. What? I called him Donnie. I didn't want your brother working for you. I talked to him about it several times before he moved in here. I told him what you were. And I knew I couldn't reach out to you and ask you to let him go. She wiped her face dry. I'd rather he be behind bars and learn his lesson than to stay with you and end up dead. Or worse, 
that turn out like you? Donnie thought of his vow to kill whoever sent Jimmy to prison. His rage returned again, burned at the edges by betrayal. His heart felt squeezed, an angry black fist pulling on it. Tell me you're lying, Mom. She shook her head no. His hands gripped into fists. Locked in them was the gun. She hadn't moved. She stood watching her son and knowing how he felt. She knew the pain of feeling the bond of family torn, like a tendon connecting you to someone else. I did it, Donnie, and he's better off. He only made one mistake, and that was trusting you. Donnie raised the gun. In the time between his finger on the trigger and the bullet leaving the barrel, Donnie already started to scream no. The sound of his regret was swallowed by the explosion in the chamber. He couldn't believe what he'd done as he watched his mother's body jerk backward with the impact. Her thin shoulders, her slightly stooped frame, it all turned and collapsed, as if someone had severed all the connections between her bones at once. Her eyes closed as she fell. Her body gave way to the act of dying. He ran forward, dropping the gun and rushing to her with his wadded-up shirt pressed hard against her chest as he tried to slow the blood from coming. Her eyes stayed closed. She wouldn't look at him. He spoke to her, pleaded for forgiveness, for her strength to fight the pain and go on. They would work it out. He'd pay for his mistakes, he promised. But she was limp in his arms. His shirt soaked more blood until he couldn't tell what was Burley's and what was hers. Fitting, he thought. Blood is blood once it's been spilled. Doesn't matter who it belongs to. It's only the blood that binds us while it flows through veins and passes down from mother to son that matters in this world. Everything else is only a stain. for all of our readers. Thank you so much, everybody was great. Uh, one more time, we got books uh, over here for sale. See the readers, uh, see the authors of the books. Buy a book, get a free book out of the, out of the box. Um, I also, um, I, I write for Mystery Scene Magazine and um, they sent me uh, free copies of this month's issue uh, because I have a piece on the great late, great Elizabeth Scott, who just passed away, who would get my vote for Queen of Film Noir. Yes. Yeah? Okay, good. Well done. Um, uh, so anyway, they, they gave me a free copy, so if you want a free copy of Mystery Scene, then uh, grab one, by all means. Uh, that's it. Uh, thank you so much for coming, guys. Uh, hang out, get another drink, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Once again, you just heard Lori Raider Day and Eric Beatner reading for our second half of Noir at the Bar Chicago. Yeah, I don't know what's up with Lori Raider Day. She was like, oh, this is the least noir thing. But here's here's what I heard, right? There was a violence. Yep. There was drugs. Yep. And I get the feeling there was going to be some sex in there, too. Am I, am, I, <laughs> am I mistaking that? Is that just in my head? There's like the school teacher student kind of thing happening there, there. There existed at least the sexual tension of possibility. There you go. That's so right. I, that all sounded pretty goddamn noiry to me. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> I would look at it kind of the same way. It's got the elements. It's got all the ingredients. Like, you're still you're still baking a cake, you know? It's got all the right ingredients. Yep. It's just a, it got flowers on it. And then Beatner. <laughs> Talk about going for, like, one of the harshest things. I guess there's no spoilers, right, because everybody listened. Yep. 
Like that story started, you're like, oh, nice revenge story. And then you're like, oh, and then there's the mom. He's just a regular guy, and his mom's like getting on his case. And then he fucking kills his mom. Holy shit. Yeah, dude. Um, once the mom said that she called the police, I was like, he's going to fucking kill the mom. <laughs> and then talk about a perfect noir at the bar story. Oh, God. That was. Um, and I was thinking Wegley was going to be the one who had me with the uh, I don't know what's coming next thing until fucking mom told told her told him that she dropped dime on on their son and on her son and i was like oh shit he's gonna kill the mom but the whole time after that i was thinking is he gonna kill the mom and then the, he kills the mom yeah that's crazy yeah, so um quite a great way to wrap up another wonderful noir at the bar chicago event these are really um it, it's you know i i don't know i don't want to say they keep getting better because i don't want to like slight the other ones but <laughs> This was this was pretty goddamn solid. I gotta tell you, I was I was thinking about all of them, and I think they all have really good energy to them and good readers. Um, some readers at the first one probably went on about thirty minutes longer than they should have, but um, besides that, the first reading was great. Uh, we forced Kevin Lynn Helmick to read that one story. Love um, that story. But then Jake's bringing in. Uh, he got Jed for the second one, and he got Eric Beatner for the third one. So he's bringing in like. Noir at the bar uh, established people to uh, to his event, which I think lends it a little bit of credibility, and then probably will get it a little more attention. So hopefully it grows. So I think he's doing a great he's doing a great job of pulling people into it. He is, and he pulled us into it, which is the best job you could possibly do. <sighs> Smart guy. So Rob, what's uh, what's next? What's our next episode? Our next episode is a little bit up in the air right now. Um, I think. We're going to have an interview, but um, here's what's going on in my life right now. I've got um, a move that's happening uh, at the end of this week, and then um, I'm working at a different place for a week, and then I'm actually going to be in California for a week. So my life is very busy and weird for the next few weeks, so um, things are not as clear as usually. So I will take the full blame on this that we don't know right now, but there will be an episode next week. We're just not 100% sure what it is. Can I tell you what's going on in my life right now? Yeah. This podcast has not um, proven as financially viable as I once thought it was going to, <laughs> and I have to fucking work like a lot, like Aww. a lot. I think I did like sixty-five hours this last week. Dude, yeah, I know. Um, yeah. When we went to, it was Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday, right? Was the event, mm-hmm. and you you had already worked forty hours by the time yep. you showed up at the yep. event. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of where I'm at. So yes, there will be an episode. Might just be me and Rob. Might just be me and Rob bickering about why we even have to do an episode. I don't know. But there will be one <laughs> next, next week. Um, can I mention you had said something you wanted to read? I somehow just found out um, through someone had shared it on Facebook, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who, so I can't give proper credit, that there is a sequel to the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter that came out like in like January or February. So it's been out for months. Oh, shit. And somehow it eluded me. So I, I definitely, that's high on my list of things to... Um, to read because i really enjoyed the first one all right nice. so that's that's what i'm going to not be reading i'm just saying i'm going to <laughs> it's what i'm going to be not reading this next week or two all right well while you're not reading that i will not be reading josh k stevens mm-hmm. um I'm, I'm honestly going to give it a shot i've got a, i've got days off for for moving so when i need to take a break from packing and stuff i'm gonna try and flip through it it looks like it's pretty attackable 
So. Excellent. I, you've just got to read it in his voice, man. His delivery for that for the Deuce character, <laughs> fucking amazing. Yeah, it was good. I, I liked it a lot. The whole reading was great, and um, I'm looking forward to Jake pulling off a, another uh, excellent lineup of, of Chicago natives, but also maybe some people from around other places. Can I tell you this, how much I've been working? I was actually thinking about the next one, and I was thinking in my head that it's the, the Q4 Noir at the Bar. <laughs> oh, like I'm actually thinking in business quarters now. Oh no! So all right, until next week, I'm Livia Snedden, and now I'm Rebels, and keep reading.